Now, during this first leg of our summer trip to Rome, we have focused mostly on Paul's theology of justification. So, a quick recap. Number one, what exactly is justification? Well, to be justified means to be declared righteous in God's sight. And this only happens because Christ's righteousness has been credited to our account. Our sins are forgiven through his broken body and shed blood on the cross. But why do we need to be justified by God to begin with? Well, we need to be justified because left to ourselves, we are all sinners, worthy of God's wrath. That's what Paul talks about in part of Romans 1, all of Romans 2, and part of Romans 3 as well. But then how are we justified by God? Well, we're justified by faith in Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. We are not justified by our works of religious exercise or general morality. This is all thanks to God's grace, meaning that there is no room for us to boast. And then last week, we talked about who we are as justified people. We are no longer God's enemies. We have peace with him. We are people who can rejoice through the sufferings of this life and rejoice at the promise of glory in the next. We are people of hope, people of assurance, people of confidence, because we are no longer condemned along with Adam, destined for judgment and death. Instead, we are united to Christ, destined for eternal life. Now, again, most of Romans 1 through 5 is that message of justification over and over again. As we mentioned, these past five or six sermons may have sounded repetitive. There was a lot of overlap from chapter to chapter. But Paul, in his wisdom and by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, felt it necessary to drill these truths into the Romans' heads. And that's why we've spent the past six weeks drilling the same truths into our heads. But what now? What now? You're justified. You know who Christ is. You know what he's done. You believe that it's all true. What now? Do you hold all these doctrines in your head, but just go back to the same old normal life you led before you believed? Do you just wait around until you die or Christ returns, looking forward to the promise of spending eternity in God's presence? You're justified. Praise God for that. It's great. But what now? So open up to Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we have here if you didn't bring one. That becomes all the more important when the screen doesn't work. So open up those Bibles. We'll be reading in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Thank you for the people that you've brought here this morning, whether they're guests or regular attenders or however it is that we got here. I pray that you would watch over us as we worship. And I pray that our worship would be not just for our sake, not just to make us feel better after a tough week, not just to inspire us or encourage us in the week ahead. They can do those things, but most importantly, we pray that this service would be honoring to you. And Father, we 
simply glorify you with our words. We glorify you with these songs. And Father, I pray that we would glorify you in response to the text that we're about to read. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we have together. We thank you for your son. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Romans 6, verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives... He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So Romans 6 begins with a question, and it's one that probably came from Paul's opponents. And the question is, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? This question likely goes back to what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He said in that verse that the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So Paul, if sin increased, causing grace to abound all the more, are we to continue in sin so that grace may continue abounding? Another way that you could word the question or word the idea would be this. Okay, Paul, if the more I sin, the more God shows grace, then why shouldn't I just keep on sinning? I mean, it allows God to continue showing grace, and grace is a good thing, right? It's like a child arguing that if their parents' forgiveness is a good thing, Should the child continue refusing to clean their room? After all, mom and dad, if I disobey you, that gives you opportunities to forgive me. And forgiveness is a great thing, right? So I'm just going to stop cleaning my room. 
It's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. In the words of theologian N.T. Wright, the thinking goes like this. If God loves rescuing people from the mud and the mess that they're wallowing in, wouldn't it be a good idea for us to stay muddy and stay messy so that God will love us all the more? Should we continue in sin, Paul, so that grace may abound? But Paul says, no, by no means. May it never be. Why not? Because those united to Christ through baptism have died to sin. So how can they keep on living in it? Attempting to argue that those who have died to sin should continue living in it shows both a trivial and shallow understanding of our sin, but also a trivial and shallow understanding of God's grace. In his poem, For the Time Being, W.H. Auden has a character who says this, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. If that is how we understand our sin, and if that is how we understand God's grace, then we clearly haven't grasped the gravity of either one of them. That would be what theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. But Paul attacks this mentality by reminding us that Christ literally died, was buried, and was raised. And in a different but no less real sense, we too have died. We too have been buried. And we too have been raised. We have died to sin. We were buried in baptism, and we are raised to new life, not a return to the sins of our old life. And just as death has no more dominion over the risen Christ, sin will have no more dominion over us. So right now, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are to no longer let sin reign over us because we are no longer enslaved to it the way we once were. We're not only set free from sin's penalty in the next life, we are set free from sin's tyranny in this life. So for justified people, what now? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. We are to leave sin where it belongs, dead, buried, not to be raised again. Because we have died, we have been buried, and we have been raised to new life. We are called, challenged, reminded, encouraged, commanded to live within this new reality, to begin living out what God has already declared us to be. That's what happens now. But Paul's opponents aren't done yet. They have one more question for him, and we see that in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, 
You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So question number two is similar to the first. It's related to the first question, but not identical. Question number two is, okay, Paul, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? You know, this question probably gets to the most core practical concern that Paul's opponents had with the gospel he preached. They were worried that if people actually took Paul's preaching seriously, if they actually believed that obedience to the law, good works wouldn't save them, then that means people will use God's grace as an excuse to pursue whatever sin whatever immorality, whatever debauchery they want. I mean, if people standing before God is no longer based on their good ethics, if it's no longer based on their morality, then what motivation will they have for righteousness? Paul, won't all this talk about grace just enable people to sin? Won't it just encourage bad behavior? Well, Paul wasn't naive to people's tendency to use grace as an excuse to pursue sin. It was nothing new in his day. It happened in the Old Testament. And it still happens today. We can probably think of people we know who use God's grace as an excuse to pursue sin. And if we're really feeling honest, we'll probably admit that we've been guilty of it too. But this is not the gospel that Paul preaches. Should we continue in sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Once again, Paul answers, no. May it never be. Justified people, people united to Christ, dead to sin, no longer trusting in our good works for salvation, we are free. Make no mistake about it. But that doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever we want. When Paul says that we are free, he doesn't mean it in the way that we often think of freedom. God's grace does not make us free agents. Free to do whatever we want with no one to answer to. 
We have something far better than that. We are now free to joyfully love and serve God in the ways that we never would have before. We are free to faithfully worship and obey the one who set us free from sin's slavery. In the words of theologian Doug Moo, In a world in which freedom has taken on all kinds of historical and social baggage, we must remember that Paul's concept of freedom is not autonomous self-direction, but deliverance from those enslaving powers that would prevent us from becoming what God intended. Being bound to God and his will enables us to become free, to be what God wants us to be. Paul used this idea of slavery in verses 1 through 14, and he keeps using it in verses 15 through 23. He says that sin used to be our master, and sin was a cruel master. Sin pays his servants in the currency of death. But God is our new master. And he graciously gives his servants the gift of eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In the words of theologian Bob Dylan, everybody's got to serve somebody. There are no free agents. There are no free agents. You're either a slave to sin, deserving death, or a slave to God, given eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no gray area. There is no middle ground. So choose this day which master you will serve. And know that there is nothing more freeing, nothing more liberating than being a slave to God. So again, for justified people, what now? What now? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? No. By no means. Certainly not. May it never be. But what now? If we don't do all the old things that we used to do, what comes next? You know, we've talked a lot about justification, but in today's passage, Paul introduced another word. We see it in verses 19 and 22, and that word is sanctification. Sanctification means literally to make holy. And sanctification follows and springs directly out of justification. Sanctification is the spirit-driven, inside-out transformation of a justified sinner becoming more and more like Jesus, being made holy. In justification, God declares us to be righteous. In sanctification, the Holy Spirit drives the long, sometimes slow and methodical work of actually making us righteous. Justification is a one-time event. But sanctification is an ongoing process. It's God enabling us to actually live out what he's already said about us. So if you compare the Christian life to a race, which the New Testament does in several different passages, you could look at it this way. Justification is our entry into the field 
And it's the promise that one day we will cross the finish line. Glorification is the reward at the end. When we die, Christ returns, whichever comes first. When we are made perfect once and for all, living in God's perfect presence. But everything else in between? Sanctification. It's the grueling, tiring grind of running this race. Of living our lives in a manner pleasing to God. It's the Holy Spirit slowly but surely making us righteous. It is slowly but surely dying to sin and learning to live in newness of life. Learning to live in holiness. So for a third time, for justified people, what now? Well, Paul's told us what happens now. We're to put our sin to death. We get to joyfully serve God. We are being sanctified, being made holy and righteous. And this is a lifelong process. It's a daily battle. It definitely won't always be easy. Even though we're no longer enslaved to sin the way we once were, that doesn't mean that sin instantly goes away entirely. We will still be tempted. We will still stumble. We will still fall. We will still have sin to confess. We will still have sin to repent of. But our new master lifts us up. He reminds us that we are justified. He reminds us that we are free. He reminds us that sin no longer reigns over us. And slowly but surely, sin loses its grip on our lives. The Puritan theologian John Owen once wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. The mortification of sin is what Paul talks about in Romans 6, putting our sin to death. That's why he uses the word mortification. Paul also talks about it in Romans 8.13. It's putting to death the deeds of the body. Dying to sin. The way Owen put it was this way. The choicest believers who are assuredly free from the condemning power of sin. That's getting at justification. We do not fear the day of judgment. Ought to make it their business all their days to mortify, to kill the indwelling power of sin. That's the sin that we still wrestle with. The sin that we still find ourselves tempted by. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, mortify. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Put them to death. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You're dying to sin. And have put on the new self. Romans 6 calls that newness of life. Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's another way of saying sanctification. 
And you know, sometimes I worry that many Christians, myself included, we have lost sight of the importance of what comes next for justified people. All too often, instead of putting sin to death, we give it safe harbor. Instead of leaving sin buried where it belongs, we dig it up. We serve sin like it's still our master, even though we've been set free. And eventually, we may even stop resisting sin entirely. We justify it by saying things like, oh, well, this is just something I struggle with, when the truth is we stopped struggling a long time ago. We aren't killing that sin. We've made peace with that sin. And in doing so, we make the same error that Paul addresses in Romans 6, taking God's grace for granted in order that we may continue in sin. But I pray that for us, that would never be. By no means. Certainly not. May we remember who we are in Christ. Dead, buried, and raised to new life. No longer ruled by old, familiar sins. May we remember that we have a new master. One we serve with joy. Who has given us the gift of eternal life. And may we remember that we are being sanctified to holiness, not a return to unrighteousness. May we flee the path of death and judgment that we once walked and cling to Christ on the path to glory. So for the final time, for justified people, what happens now? Paul told us in Romans 6, 11 through 13. We consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We do not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, making it obey our passions. We do not present our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Instead, we present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And we present our members to God as instruments for righteousness, tools for righteousness. So now that we've been justified, we don't simply hold all these doctrines in our heads and go back to the same old normal lives we led before we believed. And justified people don't just wait around until we die or Christ returns, looking forward to the promise of spending eternity in God's presence. By no means. May it never be. Certainly not. Because there is still much to be done between now and then. There is sin to be put to death. We have a master to joyfully serve. There is still a lot of sanctification the Holy Spirit has left to do in us. And all these things happen now. Not so that we may be justified, but because we already are. That's what happens now. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. In one of the songs that we sang earlier, the phrase, it is finished, was used. And our justification is finished. That was finished on the cross 
when Christ's broken body and shed blood was given for us. But our sanctification is not finished. There is still much work that you have to do in our hearts and in our minds. There is much work that you call us to do. And we do it with joy. We do it as we put our sin to death and joyfully serve you. We do it knowing that we are free because you have justified us. You have saved us. You have forgiven us. You have declared us to be righteous because of what Christ did on our behalf. And that is incredibly liberating. That is incredibly freeing. And so, Father, I pray that we would actually live like these things that we say are true. I pray that we would embrace the new identity, the new reality, the new calling that you have given to us. Father, again, I pray that with the Holy Spirit's guidance, with his lead, that we would actually begin to live righteous lives because you have declared us to be righteous. Help us in this, Lord. Help us help each other in this as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, ultimately, may we all glorify you in doing this work. Father, again, we worship you, we praise you, we honor you. We thank you that you have justified us, and we ask you and we trust you to continue sanctifying us. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.